Thank you for listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these sermons, or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com. And now, here's this week's sermon. Good morning, church. Let's open our uh, Bibles to Mark chapter 8. We begin in verse 1 in just a moment. Mark chapter 8, if you want to make those ready. Before I walk on stage, most every single Sunday, and I hope every service, but at least most every service, I'll say these words to God, please help me with this today. And then I tried to open my iPad and it wouldn't turn on, and I thought maybe he was telling me it's that bad, but sorry, you get to stay, because it actually turned on, so I was a little bit worried there. Hey, uh, when I was a kid, probably in sixth or seventh grade, if I remember right, I hung out with a, uh, a guy named Terry O'Brien. Terry and I played baseball together. There wasn't travel baseball a thousand years ago when I was a kid, so it wasn't a deal, but we had this all-star team that we got to play on, and if we won the little uh, Clay County or Clay Township league, we got to go play other all-star teams, and so we happened to make that particular team. All of that to say, uh, also in the 70s when I was a junior high kid uh, being raised, parents didn't go to everything. It, that wasn't something that I remember happening often for anybody, but parents would take turns who took us to these games and who brought us home. Well, one particular game that we were going to, a town called Laporte, Laporte, Indiana, and we were going there, and Mr. O'Brien decided he would take us. And I had to come home with their family because my folks didn't go with me to that tournament. And when we were coming back, my dad had given me $5 that day for the tournament and said, get yourself something to eat after the game. And I did. I'm an obedient child, and so I spent his money feeding myself. And he gave me $5, and I remember I had less than $3 in my pocket because I'd, I bought probably some licorice in a snow cone or something like that, and I got in the car, and Mr. O'Brien announced to his family that they were going to dinner. And the place that they named was not a place that my family ate at a lot because it was an expensive place. And, you know, anything in the 70s that started at $10 was something my dad would go, I can feed all of you for $10, and we didn't eat that way. We ate at places where he could feed me for a dollar and a quarter if he liked me, right? So Mr. O'Brien announced we were going to go to this place called Steak and Ale, and that was a steakhouse, and it was a fancy steakhouse. We only ate there maybe on Easter, possibly. And here I was sitting in the back seat with less than $3 in my pocket. There's nothing on the Steak and Ale menu for $3, not even a glass of water. And so when we sat at the table, I knew I was nervous. I was trying not to show I was nervous. You know, here I am, they're dragging me home, and, and I don't have enough money to buy my meal. And we were sitting there, and the waitress came up, and she asked what we wanted. And I said, I'm not hungry. I, I, I don't want anything. Thank you. And Mr. O'Brien, in one of those moments that I was very, very grateful for, he looked at me, and he said, I am buying your dinner tonight. You're a part of my family. And I like that. I like that, because I... I wasn't a part of his family, but I wanted to be. I mean, I loved my family, but the O'Brien family was awesome. I mean, they ate at steak and ale because they wanted to. And I wanted to be a part of that family. And that night, I was a part of his family. And it was so cool that not only did he, uh, you know, let us get what we wanted. I, only, I remember distinctly, I only ordered a hamburger because I couldn't order a steak. I could not will myself to order a steak. So I ordered a real nice hamburger and big french fries. And he even bought dessert for everybody. He's a good dad. Just a good dad. I may have told my dad about that a hundred times. Um, but I remember to this day, 53 years old, so this is 40-some years later, I remember to this day what a gift that was. I remember being invited into something I wasn't privileged to expect to happen. And I just remember how good it felt for Mr. O'Brien to say, you're a part of my family tonight. It was a good thing. 
I want to take you to Mark chapter 8, where you're going to understand that there is a moment uh, where Jesus invites people into a family they don't belong to. It's a powerful moment. It's the feeding of the 4,000 found in Mark chapter 8. I want to make two points this morning. The compassion of God is directed toward all people groups. The compassion of God is directed toward all people groups. Two key words, compassion and all. And I want to show you by this text that Jesus is about to commission these disciples to go into all the world and preach the good news. Not a part of the world, not an ethnic part of the world, all the world. I read recently, or I heard recently, it just stuck in my head as a wonderful word picture, and it says that big doors swing on small hinges. I thought that's true. Big doors swing on small hinges. This is a small hinge that opens big doors in the Gospels. And let me show you why. Mark chapter 8, verse 1. During those days, another large crowd gathered. Since they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him, and he said, I have compassion for these people. They have already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them home hungry, they will collapse on the way because some of them have come a long distance. His disciples answered, but where is this remote place? Can anyone get enough bread to feed them? How many loaves do you have, Jesus asked. Seven, they replied. He told the crowd to sit down on the ground, and when he had taken the seven loaves and given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people, and they did so. They had a few small fish as well. He gave thanks for them also and told the disciples to distribute them. The people ate and were satisfied. Afterward, the disciples picked up seven basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. About 4,000 men were present, and having sent them away, he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the region of Dalmanutha. Okay, the town of Dalmanutha is actually probably known more commonly by us as Magdala, where Mary was from. And this will play into this story here in just a moment. What I really want to point out at the beginning here is verse 2, is Jesus says, I have compassion. Now, what's interesting to me is this is the only time in all of the Gospels that I can find that Jesus actually expresses verbally his compassion toward a group of people. Now, throughout the Gospels, there's, there's no question he's acted compassionately. He's chosen to be compassionate. This is the only time in all of scriptures that I can find that Jesus said, I have compassion, and listen to what he said, for these people. There are some that have speculated falsely or ignorantly, and I don't mean like intentionally, but just ignorantly, have suggested that really the feeding of the 5,000, the feeding of the 4,000 are so similar, they're probably the same event, they just got the numbers jacked up. Nope, and I'll show you why today. It's really not the case because it happens in different places. And here's the most important thing I want you to trigger, to be triggered on right now. It happens to different kinds of people. Why would Jesus say, for the only time that we have record of, I feel compassion toward these people? Because these people were not Jewish. He's saying to them, I have this feeling. Now, my grandmother used to get upset because she had four grandsons who all lived in the same house. She would get upset with what she called locker room talk. Now, for locker room talk is not what some of you are fearful I'm about to enter into right now. Yours is, and mine is probably a lot worse than grandma ever knew about. But if you said the word butt or guts around my grandma, she would get her handkerchief out and start waving herself, right? That's locker room talk, boys. That's inappropriate. And it may be, but it wasn't the worst thing I'd ever said. So I want you to know that Jesus actually uses locker room talk here. The word for compassion is actually the Greek word for bowels, inner organs, and the feelings of the heart. Here's what he's saying. I am moved 
for these people. You see, what I love about Jesus is he doesn't just think I ought to have compassion. He doesn't think it would be good to be compassionate here. People would think well of me. He says, I'm moved by these people. He even told his disciples. What a shocking statement for these 12 Jewish men to hear and the larger group that gathered. I have feelings. I have strong feelings. I am moved in my guts for these folks. This would be shocking to a Jewish audience that he would have this kind of compassion. But please understand, compassion is an attribute of God. It is part of who he is. Psalm 114, the Lord is gracious and compassionate. In the feeding of the 5,000 that Matt Gilchrist preached on uh, several weeks ago, he pointed this same point out, that Jesus had a compassionate feeling toward these that gathered to hear him teach. He felt for them. He loved them. He desired them. In verse 4, it says, but where in this remote place can we get enough bread to feed them? Some translations are unique in verse 4 because it says this, where are we going to get all the food to feed these people? Can you hear it? Now, now, before we look at this group, and this is going to be a tendency of mine today, and so I'm going to keep reminding myself by telling you not to do this, okay? Does that make sense? Don't hear the rebuke to the crowd this day as a rebuke of them. Ask yourself, could this also be a rebuke of me? When they said, well, how are we going to get enough food to feed these people? They didn't ask that same kind of question in the feeding of the 5,000. They said, where are we going to get enough food? We'd love to do this. We don't have enough money with us to buy food for these people. But they say to Jesus, how are you going to feed these people? So I want to ask us the question this morning. Without, please don't answer it out loud as if this church ever would. <laughs> Who are these people to you? Is it people with sexual identity issues? Is it Muslims? Is it people of a different color? Is it people of a different dialect? Political power. Is it the rich people, the poor people, the, the always poor people? Who is these people to us? Because let's not deny for a second that we all have these people in mind. You know, these people don't want to be saved, so we'll give up on them. These people haven't earned the right to understand who Jesus is. They're too far gone. Or these people stand against our Jesus. Or these people don't agree with us about how you worship Jesus. I can go all day because I have a list of these people that's in the darkness of my heart. People that I'm like, nah, Jesus can't have compassion for them because they did it to themselves. When they ask Jesus, how are we going to feed these people? We have to ask ourselves the same question. Would we feed these people if we could? And then, interesting this morning, the question has been raised by several scholars, and one of our elders brought it up this morning in our prayer time. The question is, did the disciples forget the feeding of the 5,000? Are they really that dense that they'd been here before? No, no, I don't think they're questioning. Listen to me. I don't think they're questioning whether he can feed the 5,000. I think they're asking, does he want to? They knew he could, but you know, they're these people. They're not Jewish. And God loves the Jewish people, and the rest of us he, he tolerates. And they're like, I wonder if he will take care of these people too. You see, God's compassion is from his character. It's where it comes from. And it's for all things made in his image. So no matter who you and I think those people are, we're wrong. He loves the person you hate to the same degree he loves you. And it's with pure, compassionate moved by love 
So Jesus, he prays, he breaks the bread, he takes the fish, and he says to his disciples, feed them, feed them, feed them. And continuously, he keeps breaking and breaking and breaking and breaking and breaking. And I, I don't think Jesus got all happy. You know, like sometimes my wife will come in with a meal. She gets in the kitchen and she cooks wonderfully. And she comes out and I, and I kind of look at what she's put out. And I'm like, are we having guests? He's like, the Brady Bunch coming over? Because this is enough food for all of us for the month. And she's like, I know, I just, I just got happy. And I'm happy she got happy, trust me. None of it will go to waste. But do you think Jesus was just breaking bread and he forgot what he was doing? He's like, oh, how much we got left? Seven basketballs, <laughs> my bad. Now he's teaching them a lesson. That he's not only gonna feed the crowd that's in front of him, what he's doing can feed people long after it, over and over and over. The divine, compassionate power of God is for everyone, even these people. Second point this morning is this. The, pa- the compassion of God should open our eyes toward him. Verse 10, if you might remember and look back in your Bibles there, verse 10, he gets in a boat after he feeds them and he goes to the Jewish region. That's important to note. Then verse 11, the Pharisees came and began to question Jesus. Think about this. You just have this huge picnic. You just fed this whole group of people. The disciples are like, look at this guy. He's fantastic. And then they get off the beach and there's a bunch of experts. To test him, they asked him for a sign from heaven. Now pause here with me in verse 11 for a moment. I need you to notice the distinction. They don't ask him, I would read this in the past as they asked him for another sign. You know, I, I know what they mean, right? What I've learned is they weren't asking him for another, for another sign. They were asking him for a specific sign, a sign from heaven. Because they believed that only God could bring things from heaven. Remember when Moses appeared before Pharaoh in Egypt that Pharaoh's wise men did some of the very miracles that Moses did. They were looking for something so distinct from heaven. He sighed deeply. This is the second time Mark records he sighs. The last time was when they brought to him a deaf mute man and Jesus saw the damage that sin had done to God's world and he just, he sighs again. Why does this generation ask for a miraculous sign? I tell you the truth, no sign will be given to it. I love this. One translator says that if you take the Greek construction of this sentence and you don't try to clean it up too much, it may sound like this. If I give this generation a sign, may I die? It sounds like a Jewish statement. May I die? Such a statement. But he says, may I die if this happens, and which is incredible because he did. He exactly would. He would give him a sign. His death would be the sign. Man, Jesus knows what he's doing. And they come and they say, we want a sign from heaven because they know if he won't try, he, he confesses he's not from God. And if he does try, he can only fail. There's no way he's from heaven. And it won't appear on the screen, but in John chapter three, Nicodemus, who was a Pharisee, one of these in the crowd. Now, I don't believe that Nicodemus was buying into everything they were selling, but he was a Pharisee. And he even comes to Jesus late at night one night and he says to Jesus, we know that you've come from God because no one can do what you do. And yet they denied it. Think about it, taking a little boy's sack lunch and feeding 5,000, taking some loaves and some fish and feeding 4,000, opening the eyes of blind people, opening the ears of deaf people, loosening the vocal cords of a mute person, healing arms and legs that did not function, raising people from the dead, and that's not enough. That's not a sign from heaven. And Jesus responds to them harshly. He says, I will not show you a sign 
I chose Mark chapter 8, although I could have used Matthew chapter 16 because it's a parallel account from Matthew's viewpoint. But I want to point out that Matthew mentions a few things that Mark leaves out. Matthew mentions that he looked at the leaders and he says, you can read the sky at night to know what the weather's going to be like tomorrow, but you can't see what's right in front of you. Interesting line. And he says, the only sign I'm going to give you is the sign of Jonah. We'll talk about this later. The sign of Jonah is three days in the belly of a fish, and then he reappeared. And we all know, because we live on the good side of glory, that that's the resurrection. See, the resurrection is the line in the cement for faith. Jesus said, that's the only thing that will ever prove to anybody that I am who I said. It won't be the healings and the miracles, because you guys are missing every one of those. It will be the resurrection. In John chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. He's saying to them, you're allowing your doubts and fears and your pride to keep you from seeing the light that I'm showing you. In Ephesians chapter 4, Paul would take that in a powerful letter to the early church. Paul would say these words, notice the progression. They have become darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them because of the hardness of their hearts. He said, I will not show you another sign because you do not want to see the sign. You want me to meet your expectations. It's a crucial point. Big doors swing on tiny hinges. You see, this is a crucial point in the ministry of Jesus because from this moment forward, he stops dealing and trying to convince the Jews that have turned against him and he opens his mind and he opens his ministry to the Gentiles. Because the Old Testament prophet said that his people would reject him and he would open it to all the world. This is the hinge moment where Jesus understanding that the Jews had finally decided no matter what he did, they would not believe until the resurrection, he turned his face toward the Gentiles. Now, this was not him conceding. Well, the Jews give up. Maybe I'll try these people. It wasn't that at all. This was intentional. And it's the hinge moment. Verse 13, then he left them, got back into the boat and crossed to the other side. The other side. He went back to the Gentiles. Interesting. Verse 14. The disciples had forgotten to bring bread except for one loaf that they had with them in the boat. Now, can we pause for a moment? Everybody take a deep breath and realize how funny this is. Now, let's see if you paid any attention at all. How many baskets were left when they were done? You would think if you were hungry, you might have snatched some of that, right? They get in the boat and they're like, dude, did anybody grab any food? I got, a, I got one biscuit here. And they're like, oh, man. All that food left on the beach, we got in the boat, we left it. No one had any bread. Jesus, be careful, Jesus warned them. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. They discussed with one another and said, is it because we have no bread? (laughs) They're clueless. They're arguing, oh, we should have brought bread. Aware of their discussion, and it's funny here that Mark doesn't record for the third time in Mark that Jesus sighed, wouldn't you? At this point, I'd be like, oh my goodness. Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, Why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Remember, he had just scolded the religious leaders. Now, because I grew up in a family of four boys, I remember this one particular time. My dad would give you fair warning shots across the bow when he'd had about enough. He could be very, very funny, but every now and then he'd like, and it always sounded like this, boys, stop. Well, I remember one time being in our station wagon. There were four of us, little guys in the back seat, and we could sit across the back bench in the, seat, in the, in the back with no seatbelts because our parents didn't love us. <laughs> and 
So the four of us were back there, and we were doing something we shouldn't have been doing. We are probably just having fun, but he didn't like it, or for whatever reason. I could see my dad's ears getting red. I can read a thermometer. I know when it's getting hot. And whatever we were doing, we weren't going to stop, and my dad pulled the station wagon over to the side of the road. And I could tell my mom's reaction. My dad was always in a hurry. No matter where we went, we had to go, 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 go. He pulled it over to the side of the road, and I saw my mom look, like, oh, no. And my dad turned around, you know, that one of those dad things, just turned around and looked at all of us in the back seat. And I was so blessed to hear these words. Scott, I said, stop. My name's Mark. I'm okay. And at that moment, I'm looking at Scott going, yeah, you better quit. Because I was going to live through that day. The disciples are in the boat thinking, man, he just peeled the religious leaders. And Jesus looks at him and he asks them the same question. Are your hearts hardened? He wasn't just talking to those people. He's talking to all of us. Do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? He's like, do I have to do a miracle on you too? And don't you remember? I love this. When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many basketful of pieces did you pick up? Twelve, they said. And when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many basketful of pieces did you pick up? They answered, seven. I said, don't you understand? He had cautioned them. The word leaven or yeast throughout the Bible means infiltration. But be careful. It's not always a bad thing. I have often mistakenly said while teaching that leaven is always evil. No, no, no. It's not always evil in the scriptures. So be careful. What it is is something. You can't put yeast in one part of a batch of anything. It will find its way through everything. This is the point he's making. But listen to what he says. Be careful of the infiltration, the thoughts and ideologies of the Pharisees. They will not see what I'm doing. They will not give me a chance. I'm demonstrating my power and my compassion, and they're rejecting me because I'm not doing it their way. And be careful of Herod. Herod is only after me because I've called out his sin, and he won't repent. So he's after me. His ideology is that Jesus has to go the moment he offends you. The Pharisees were saying, no, no, Jesus isn't the right way to do it. There's a bunch of ways to get to God. Follow our ways. Jesus is saying to his disciples, be careful what you're listening to. I'll say to this church, be careful of what our society is telling you about Jesus. Be careful of the leaven of a culture that says Jesus is old-timey and ineffective. And they were worried about bread. So Jesus gives them a little pop quiz here. He says, do you not see and understand? Can you not hear me? Do you have ears that don't see and ears that don't listen? Do you not remember Remembering, it's fascinating. So he gives them a pop quiz, and I love it here. So how many, when we were the 5,000, how many baskets? 12? He's like, good. And what we just did with, over in the other region, how many baskets? Seven? He says, don't you see it? Can you stop for a moment? Listen to what he's saying. Do you not remember? For us to understand where Jesus might take us, we have to pay attention to where he's already taken us. If we're not paying attention to what Jesus has already done, we will miss what he's doing now. For those of you who wonder if Jesus cares about your life at all, spend just a few moments with all the noise off. Turn off your television, turn off your radio, turn off your podcast, turn off the noise and ask yourself this question, has he ever been good to me? Has he ever been faithful to me? Has he ever given me any reason to believe that he loves me? When you will spend time discovering that, then you'll see the patterns of God's love that you're missing now because we're not remembering how good he's been. Because he's not going to stop being good because he's moved with compassion. It's his character. So what's with the 12 and the 7? Well, obviously, we can figure it out, right? 
How many tribes of, Ju- of Judah made up the Jewish nation? Twelve. Good. Excellent. So what's with the seven? Why didn't he produce twelve the next time? Because it wasn't about the Jews. Did you know that when they went into the promised land, when they crossed over the Jordan into the promised land, do you know what they were told to look for? In Deuteronomy 7, it says, when the Lord brings you into the land, I want you to count. I'm going to tell you when to count. Are you all ready? This is a Sesame Street moment. I think you can do this, right? And we're all done. We'll all go, ha, ha, ha. Okay, all right? So here we go. When the Lord your God brings you into the land you're entering to possess, and he drives out before you many nations, ready? Start counting with me. The Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites. I wish there were termites, but they're not there. Seven nations larger and stronger than you. Twelve baskets for the Jews. Seven baskets for the great Gentile nations. He would look at these twelve, eleven, later, and he would say, go into all the world. Start in Jerusalem. Go into Judea. Go to Samaria. Go everywhere else. Don't you remember, I always have more than the people need if they will come to me. He's just taught us a powerful truth. A few weeks ago, we asked you to open your phones. In fact, what was beautiful is while uh, we were praying for our offering this morning, someone's phone went off at 9.38. And they desperately grabbed it and silenced it. Awesome. It's irritated me ever since I set my alarm. Because normally, because I'm so old, at 9.38, I'm already asleep, and it goes off at 9.38 p.m., and I'm like, yeah, 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 and I click it off. But in the morning, what I've tried to train myself to do is when it goes off at 9.38, I ask myself the question, God, would you show me someone today I can tell about Jesus and give them good news? And at 9.38 at night when it goes off, I ask myself this question, did I get an opportunity and pay attention to share the gospel with anybody today? I don't mean preach them a sermon. I don't mean tell them they're going to hell. I mean tell them how good Jesus is, that they might see his goodness and feel his compassion. We asked you all to do that. Some of you have stopped doing it. It's okay, no judgment. But the task has not ended because the gimmick has become old. In fact, we asked you to take a card. One of the cards said, Awaken. And we asked you to write your name down if you wanted us to join in praying that God would keep your heart attuned to the opportunities to present the gospel. And many of you did. And we put the names out on the glass out front. And then we asked you to take another card that said, Engage. We ask you to write down the name of a person or persons that you really want to be able to have a good conversation about Jesus, someone who doesn't believe there's a place for them. And a bunch of you turned those cards into, and we wrote their names up out on the glass in the foyer. And we ask you to do this because the opportunity to partner with God in administrating the gospel is what Jesus is preparing his disciples to do. He said, the Jewish nation is ready. The Gentile nations are ready They need this new kingdom. They need the hope of the gospel. And that's why we're here. It's not just to get ours. It's to help others understand that they can have theirs too. Yet some of you feel outside of it. Some of you, if you're honest, right now you're struggling with even offering it to anybody else because you're not sure you have it. You think if you knew what I did, you might even say to me, preacher, I'm your these people. I don't feel comfortable in the church. I don't feel welcome in the church. I I feel this way about life, and I know that that's not popular here, or I do this, or or I vote this way, or I'm not this, and I'm not that, and you judge yourself. Let me tell you right now, if the church has ever taught you that you're not welcome in the church, the church needs to repent. All people are welcomed. 
And God invites us to come as we are. But please understand, he's not going to allow us to stay as we are. Through his love and compassion, he's going to move in our hearts. Are we open to that? So if you sit here today saying, I want Jesus, but man, the church is a mess. Yeah, I know. I know. But Jesus is worth fighting through all the mess of the church to live in a community where you're accepted. The second thing is some of you feel others should be outside of it. We need to stop that. We don't get to say no for anybody else, especially no for Jesus. We need to invite all people to understand the grace and mercy of Christ. And he will call us as we are and not let us remain as we are. Through his compassion and his gentleness, he wants to open our eyes, open our ears, and soften our hearts. Are we open to that today? Because in a few moments, we're going to give you an opportunity to take those cards and do something more with them. Let's not quit. The gimmick may end, but the need remains. Let's stand together. Thank you for listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these sermons or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com.